On January 5, 1974, passengers flying into London's Heathrow Airport looked out their windows, perhaps startled to find absolute chaos. Down below, a row of tanks and armored personnel carriers flooded the tarmac. About 150 British troops had surrounded the airfield. They set up checkpoints along the airport's roads and examined the IDs of everyone coming and going. The airport looked like a war zone. A local newspaper called The Evening Standard soon printed photos of terrified passengers next to soldiers with automatic rifles. Across the country, people were wondering why the airport was under siege. A spokesperson from the UK's home office said it was a military exercise codenamed Operation Marmion. They believed that Palestinian terrorists were planning to attack Heathrow with rocket launchers. The point of Operation Marmion was to test the Army's ability to respond to these sorts of threats. It also sent a message to potential terrorists that the United Kingdom was prepared for anything. Some were reassured by this explanation, but for Harold Wilson, who was about to become prime minister for the second time, this was an ominous sign. He wondered if it really was an exercise. To him, it looked more like practicing for a coup. He suspected that first, the army would take over the airports, then the newspapers. Next, they'd come for him. Paranoid as it sounded, he wasn't so far from the truth. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our second episode on the former British Prime Minister, Sir James Harold Wilson. Last time, we followed his career from a humble economist to the highest office in Great Britain. Beset on all sides by his enemies, he kept the country from sliding into bankruptcy while also resisting pressures from America to join the Vietnam War. In this episode, we'll explore three explosive conspiracies surrounding his tenure. We'll look at a newspaper mogul's attempt to overthrow Wilson's government and investigate claims that Harold Wilson was actually a Soviet spy. Finally, we'll examine whether British security services undermined Wilson and tried to remove him from power. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. There's one thing we can all agree on. Dealing with pests is a pain. But luckily, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. So if your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. 
That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X dot com. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened, I'm okay, other people have it worse, it doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd start to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Nineteen sixty seven was a difficult year for Harold Wilson. A spiraling trade debt forced his government to devalue their currency, a move he viewed as a national embarrassment. At the same time, strikes shut down British harbors and Vietnam War protesters filled the streets of London. Meanwhile, petty power struggles crippled Wilson's cabinet internally. One of his top ministers, George Brown, accused Wilson of turning the UK into a dictatorship. It appeared as if the fabric of British society was breaking down, perhaps with a rudderless government to blame. Many felt that Wilson was incompetent, or even worse, totally corrupt. Somebody had to stop him before the whole United Kingdom collapsed. At the helm of this sentiment was publishing magnate Cecil King. This brings us to conspiracy theory number one, that Cecil King, backed by other politicians, bankers, and royalty, orchestrated a coup against Wilson. To understand how this might have happened, we need to know a little more about the players, starting with Cecil King. Cecil Harmsworth King was born to wealth and privilege. He'd worked his way to the top of his uncle's newspaper called The Daily Mirror. With the help of a young journalist named Hugh Cudlip, he'd turned The Mirror into the best-selling newspaper in the nation. During the 1950s, King bought out most of his competitors, creating a media monopoly. In 1963, he became the chairman of the International Publishing Company, a gigantic conglomeration of more than 200 newspapers and magazines. But King's ambitions weren't about money. Since birth, he'd had more cash than he could spend. What really mattered to him was power. Specifically, political influence. 
He hired members of Parliament, like future Foreign Secretary George Brown, as his consultants. His staff worked as political speechwriters for Labor Party candidates. He even paid for their campaigns. Some people called him King, the Kingmaker. In 1964, Harold Wilson charmed King with one-on-one meetings and promises of patronage. Afterwards, the Daily Mirror eagerly supported Wilson's candidacy. They published negative articles about the conservative party and heaped lavish praise on Wilson as a smart up-and-comer. When Wilson finally became prime minister, King believed it was of his own doing. But two years later, King's attitude wasn't so favorable. He felt he'd made a mistake. He looked to the nation's economic woes and saw Wilson's weak leadership as the problem. But his objections went further, to something even more personal. King had asked Wilson to make him an earl as a thanks for his help back in 1964. When Wilson refused, King felt it was a slap in the face. It wasn't a coincidence, then, that by 1967, the Daily Mirror had launched an all-out smear campaign directed at Wilson and his cabinet. Newspapers and magazines under his control argued that Wilson was a menace to the country. But words weren't enough. If Wilson wouldn't relinquish his power, then King felt someone needed to take it from him. Luckily for King, Wilson had plenty of enemies willing to listen to his plan. First, King spoke with one of Wilson's toughest critics, a man named Lord Cromer, who ran the Bank of England. What King proposed during their secret meetings was nothing short of treason. He aimed to overthrow Wilson's cabinet and replace it with an emergency government, one made up of politicians, bankers, businessmen, and, of course, himself. However, the plan was doomed without the Crown's approval. According to the British Constitution, most policy decisions were made by the elected government and members of Parliament. But the government served at the pleasure of its monarch, Queen Elizabeth II. The only way an illegal takeover, like Cecil King's, could appear legitimate was with her blessing. But there was no reason for her to entertain this plan, let alone approve of it. The Queen was reportedly fond of Harold Wilson. The only way it seemed possible, from King's perspective, was if the Queen's hand was forced. Like, say, if a member of the royal family was involved in a failed coup. Then, she might have to act just to protect them from harm. That person had to be someone high-ranking, who commanded authority. Someone with an unassailable character and a strong stomach for leadership. Without those things, the army wouldn't follow their orders. What's more, they had to believe that what they were doing was right. There was only one man who fit the bill. The Queen's husband, Prince Philip's uncle, Lord Mountbatten. Known to his friends as Dickie, Lord Mountbatten was a highly decorated World War II naval commander. After the war, he became the highest-ranking officer in the British Armed Forces. His subordinates loved him because he took the trouble to learn their names, a rare attribute among senior officers. He was a mentor to 42-year-old Queen Elizabeth. Dickey provided political support when she needed it, and advice even when she didn't. 
Elizabeth wasn't obligated to take all of his suggestions, but she always respected him. Cecil King counted on this relationship. If Dickey replaced Harold Wilson in a coup, the Queen would have no choice but to accept his new government. If she didn't, her uncle would be arrested, possibly even executed for treason. By choosing Dickey, King was killing two birds with one stone. Not only could the 67-year-old veteran win the Queen's support, he would also have the loyalty of the armed forces. All Dickey had to do was say yes. We know that on May 8, 1968, Cecil King and his colleague Hugh Cudlip visited Dickey at his estate. Dickey sensed that something was afoot, so he asked the government's chief science advisor, Solly Zuckerman, to attend the meeting as well. There are several accounts of what happened next, but none of them quite agree. According to Cudlip, King sat before Dickey and painted what he saw as the future, if Wilson were to stay in power. It was grim and full of chaos, bloodshed, and anarchy in the streets. His solution was conveniently seated across from him, a coup with Dickey as the new head of state. Dickey listened stone-faced as King finished his proposal. Then he asked Zuckerman for his opinion. With a snarl, Zuckerman said the whole meeting was, quote, rank treachery and stormed out. For a moment, Dickey sat in silence. When he finally spoke, his answer was a firm but polite no. With that, the meeting was over. In his diary, Dickey described King's plan as, quote, dangerous nonsense. King's recollection of the events that day went very differently. In 1981, he published his own diary entry for May 8th. According to King, he never conspired to overthrow the government. It was Dickey who requested to meet with him. According to King, Dickey launched into a monologue about Wilson's defense spending cuts and how they'd hurt military morale. They were anxious about strikes and economic collapse. The Queen was inundated with citizens' complaints about Harold Wilson, and allegedly, she also wanted him out of office. From there, King's version claimed that Dickey solicited his help and that he gave a clear assessment in reply. If domestic unrest got bad enough, the military might have to intervene. King advised Dickey to stay out of sight in case he had to assume the mantle of prime minister. And according to King, Dickey agreed wholeheartedly. Although both of these weren't as Zuckerman described in his own version of events, which actually sided with King's claims. Zuckerman wrote that Dickey was inclined to take King up on his offer. Apparently, the vain lord was intrigued by the possibility of becoming Great Britain's de facto ruler. He'd even come up with a list of names he liked for his cabinet. Zuckerman wrote that Dickey had always expressed interest in becoming prime minister, but an unwritten taboo prevented royals from holding political office, so the position was off-limits to him. But if King's plan went ahead, he could say he was forced to take charge, that the UK needed him during an emergency situation. Despite the conflicting accounts of what was said during the meeting, the outcome is certain. Dickey didn't end up supporting Cecil King, and his coup never happened. 
But that didn't stop King from trying to push Wilson out of power. Two days after his meeting with Dickey, the megalomaniacal publisher took a different course. He wrote a front-page article in the Daily Mirror calling for Wilson's resignation. The move backfired. The story made it clear that Cecil King was on a crusade against the prime minister. On May 30th, the board of the International Publishing Corporation forced King out as chairman and replaced him with his old protege, Hugh Cudlip. The whole thing reads like a true Shakespearean drama. Considering all the testimony we have, it seems clear that Cecil King was trying to overthrow the prime minister and failed miserably. So on a scale of one to 10, with 10 being the most believable, I give this one an eight. Let's step back for a minute. We know that King wanted Wilson gone, but for a conspiracy to exist, there usually has to be more than one person involved, and there doesn't seem to be any evidence that he had help. The Queen was on Wilson's side. Dickey wasn't interested in partaking. King had allies who agreed with him in principle, but as far as we know, none of them were willing to take action, which is why I have to give this theory a five. It was one man's rogue quest to topple the government. That may be, but one person can inflict a lot of damage on a country, especially if they're in a position of power like King. Another excellent example is the Soviets, who tried to place spies high up in the British government. Some suspected they may have even controlled Harold Wilson himself. Coming up... Evidence suggesting Harold Wilson may have been a Soviet spy. Massive spiders, fierce crocodiles, violent kangaroos. With all of the dangers lurking within Australia, one species remains feared above the rest. Humans. Hi listeners, it's Alastair from Parcast, and I'm hosting a new Spotify original called Crime Down Under. Every Sunday on Spotify, take a trip to the oldest continent for some of the most shocking true crime cases in modern history. Featuring a compilation of episodes from shows across Parcast Network, Crime Down Under exposes the vicious serial killers, mysterious disappearances, and terrifying crime families whose stories still stop Aussies dead in their tracks. From the beaches and deserts to the cities and suburbs, the land down under may be vast, but the horrors are hiding around every corner. Catch a new episode of Crime Down Under every Sunday. Listen free only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life. At least, not the ones you're thinking of. But they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home, like the ants in your kitchen the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of bug it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. And with over 95 years of experience, it's no wonder they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. 
So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. Now back to the story. Even before World War II ended, the USSR was busy extracting secrets from its allies, like the U.S. and the United Kingdom. For example, Klaus Fuchs, a German physicist working on the Manhattan Project, showed the Russians how to build their own atomic bomb. But in the early 1950s, a different bombshell rattled British intelligence. MI6, a British security agency, much like the CIA, discovered a startling breach. Their own head of Soviet counterintelligence was actually a Soviet spy. Kim Philby and his co-conspirators had passed countless secrets from MI6 over to the Soviets. They gave away the names of many undercover British agents who were then captured and executed by the KGB. After Philby was discovered, no one was above suspicion. The CIA wanted to know if any other British allies had been compromised. Then they heard about Harold Wilson. This brings us into conspiracy theory number two. Harold Wilson was a secret KGB operative. He rose to power with Soviet help and used his influence to make British policies more favorable to the USSR. There's a lot to unpack here, so let's start with the man behind the theory. On December 15, 1961, a KGB operative named Anatoly Golitsyn strolled into the American embassy in Helsinki, Finland. There, he asked to see the CIA station chief. He wanted to defect. Golitsyn's job at the KGB was to analyze intelligence reports from Soviet spies in over eight different countries. He had access to a mountain of classified information and was disgruntled with his bosses for not promoting him. But he refused to spill any secrets until he spoke with the CIA's director of counterintelligence, a man named James Angleton. By most accounts, Angleton was a deeply paranoid man. He'd been trained in counterespionage by his friend and mentor, Kim Philby. When Angleton learned that their friendship was a cover to steal secrets for the KGB, it devastated him. After that, he had a hard time trusting anyone. Angleton loathed communists, and there were few moral lines he wouldn't cross to stop them. He personally led a program to spy on more than 7,000 American citizens who'd protested the Vietnam War. He'd helped CIA scientists experiment with LSD and the MK Ultra program. He even tried to lead an assassination attempt against the Cuban president, Fidel Castro. Conspiracies were Angleton's stock and trade, and Golitsyn had a big one to share. But before Angleton would help him, Golitsyn had to prove his intentions were pure. Having anticipated this, he'd memorized thousands of useful documents, allowing him to give the CIA details about how the KGB trained their agents and recruited new assets. He also provided the names of Soviet spies living in secret. According to Tennant Bagley, a former CIA agent, this list included a Canadian ambassador, two NATO officials, and multiple U.S. intelligence officers. 
Golitsyn also claimed to know about highly placed assets in the United Kingdom. MI5 knew who three of Kim Philby's accomplices were. However, there was one more in hiding, possibly inside MI5 itself. MI5 agent Peter Wright was tasked with finding that mole. When he heard about Golitsyn's defection, he knew he had to speak with the asset right away. In 1963, Golitsyn visited London and Wright arranged for the two of them to discuss the KGB's penetration of MI5. However, Golitsyn had something bigger to share. He knew of a KGB plot to assassinate the right-leaning Labour Party leader, Hugh Gateskill. If you remember from part one, Gateskill was Harold Wilson's boss in the Labour Party and his political rival. But he died unexpectedly on January 18, 1963, from lupus disseminata. According to Wright, the circumstances of Gateskill's ailment seem suspicious. Lupus generally takes years to develop. However, Gateskill became ill in December 1962, shortly after a healthy visit to the Russian embassy. Wright wondered if someone had slipped the labor leader a poison pill, one that mimicked the effects of the autoimmune disease. Wright reached out to one of the nation's top microbiologists to see if this was even possible. The doctor insisted that at the time, no one knew how lupus was transmitted, nor could they recreate the symptoms. That should have been enough to convince Wright, but he had a hard time letting go. He knew the KGB had a science branch called the Chimera, which created poison specifically for assassinations. So the MI5 agent reached out to Jim Angleton at the CIA for help. Angleton ordered his men to comb through Russian scientific papers in search of more clues. After a few months, the CIA discovered there was a Russian drug that created similar symptoms to lupus. However, someone would have had to dose Gateskill every day for weeks. Wright decided that this was unlikely because none of Gateskill's close friends had motive or means, so he closed the file on it. However, Golitsyn was insistent. Not only had the KGB murdered Gateskill, but he also believed the Soviets had conspired to replace him with someone sympathetic to their cause. Someone named Harold Wilson. When Golitsyn flew to the U.S. in July 1963, he told the CIA he believed Wilson was a Soviet plant, one who was close enough to Gateskill to have poisoned him. Angleton was inclined to believe it. As we mentioned, many at the time equated socialism as a half-step away from communism, and Angleton was no different. In addition, Wilson had made numerous trips to Moscow over the years. He'd frequently called for cuts to the military and criticized America for its anti-communist witch hunts. And in the 1950s, Wilson was friendly with a Russian attaché named Ivan Skripov. As it turned out, Skripov was also a KGB agent. These facts were more than enough to convict Wilson in Angleton's mind. In 1968, Angleton went to London to meet with MI5's director, Martin Furnival Jones. Wright was apparently present for that meeting, during which Angleton shared that he had additional proof of Wilson's duplicity, a secret source one with intimate knowledge of Wilson's dealings with the KGB. 
Angleton promised to share more information on one condition if MI5 agreed not to act on it, at least not without his consent. He argued that any rash decisions would jeopardize the life of his source. However, Furnival Jones refused to surrender his own authority to the Americans, so the evidence was never exchanged. Peter Wright believed this anonymous source may have been someone from Israeli's intelligence service, known as the Mossad, but that information was never confirmed. And nobody can say how or when Wilson was allegedly recruited. Philby had been a communist at Cambridge University, where he'd sought out the KGB's attention. But Wilson had rejected offers to join the Communist Party at Oxford. Not to mention, Wilson was a socialist and had maintained anti-communist views from an early age. By most accounts, he was a fairly straightforward person. Unlike Kim Philby, he didn't get a thrill out of keeping secrets. So if he did help the KGB, it likely would have been under duress. It's hard to ignore, though, that duress was exactly where the KGB excelled. MI5 later revealed they did find an incriminating photograph of Wilson, one supposedly taken by the KGB. Allegedly, it showed Wilson with an unknown woman during his 1947 trip to Moscow. It's possible that they set him up to have an affair and blackmailed him with the photos. Maybe, but the only picture was pretty harmless looking. Wilson wasn't caught doing anything illegal or immoral. He was simply walking next to a woman they couldn't identify. There were other rumors of indiscretions, though, closer to home. In 1965, the Conservative Party recirculated gossip that Wilson was caught in bed with his private secretary, Marcia Williams. If the KGB knew about it, they could have used it against Wilson. BBC reporters Barry Penrose and Roger Courtier were actually approached by someone claiming to have photos from that affair. Supposedly, they were taken while Wilson and Marcia were in Moscow. When the reporters followed up with Marcia, though, she laughed. She said the photos were obviously fake. No British minister was foolish enough to have an affair while in the Soviet Union. She had a good point. We may not know how Wilson was recruited, but it looks like the CIA and MI5 had a pretty solid case against him. Between Gateskill's death, Angleton's source, and Wilson's connection to the KGB asset of Von Skripov, it's pretty convincing. But I'm not so sure we can trust MI5's account, especially Peter Wright. He made numerous factual errors in his memoirs, as journalist David Lee pointed out. And Golitsyn, who was described by his CIA handlers as arrogant and bullish, didn't bother mentioning his Wilson theory until two years after he defected. You'd think he would have led with that information. To me, it seems like he was just desperate to stay useful. He wasn't leaking that intel for free. It's possible a few mistakes were made along the way. But the theory makes sense. The KGB did assassinate people with poisons, and supposedly they had one that mimicked the effects of lupus. But that doesn't mean that Hugh Gateskill was murdered. Peter Wright and many others believed his death was sudden. 
But the truth was, he'd been sick for almost a year. Plenty of time for complications from lupus to run their course, like heart complications or organ failure. Those who knew him said he just hid it well. But what about Angleton's secret source? Reliability wasn't Angleton's strong suit either, apparently. According to investigative reporter Jefferson Morley, he'd lied to President Nixon about spying on Americans. And he lied again to Congress, under oath, about trying to assassinate Fidel Castro. He may have even lied about there being a source in the first place. To me, it seems like a few paranoid intelligence officers convinced themselves of something that wasn't true. I have to rate this theory a three. There are many unanswered questions. There's the mystery of the unknown woman in the photo. There's also Wilson's connection to the Soviet attaché, Ivan Skripov. But I, too, have to give this theory a three. Even though Harold Wilson probably wasn't a Soviet spy, Angleton convinced many members of the British intelligence community that he was. The idea, whether or not it was true, spread like a cancer among those willing to believe it. To many people inside his own government, Harold Wilson was a menace, one that had to go. Coming up, MI5 tries to overthrow Harold Wilson. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. After Harold Wilson resigned as prime minister in 1976, he asked BBC reporters Barry Penrose and Roger Courtier to investigate a conspiracy, one that threatened the entire British democratic system. He believed there was a smear campaign against him and his friend, Liberal Party leader Jeremy Thorpe. He thought that members of his own secret services were involved, but they ended up discovering something far more damning. Our third conspiracy theory comes from the lips of Harold Wilson himself. He claimed that a rogue group of MI5 operatives tried to undermine the Labour government and planned a coup against him. When Wilson first spoke to the reporters, his main focus was on the Thorpe case. The Labour Party had won the 1974 election with a slim majority. In order to pass legislation, they often relied on the help of the Liberal Party, which Thorpe was the head of. Now, Thorpe was being accused of having an affair with a man named Norman Scott. After their supposed relationship ended, Scott blackmailed Thorpe. Then Thorpe allegedly hired a hitman to kill his former lover. Wilson believed the whole story was fabricated, mainly because he was also smeared by the same kind of lies and innuendo. Starting in 1975, he'd heard rumors that he and Marcia Williams were communist spies. He believed these slanders originated in MI5, which was dominated by right-wing conservatives who despised his policies. And Thorpe's situation was no different. 
But over time, Wilson grew worried about more than just rumors. He believed MI5 was also spying on him. There'd been at least a dozen burglaries targeting his staff. Even his own home had been broken into, and yet the only thing missing was a stack of tax documents. Marcia Williams also had two break-ins within a few days of each other. The thieves left no fingerprints behind. They left all her jewelry. No other houses nearby were targeted. The oddness of the intrusions led Marcia to believe it was just a cover for someone to plant surveillance devices. As they dug deeper, both reporters found they too were being targeted. On September 30th, 1976, four and a half months after their first meeting with Wilson, both reporters were fired from the British Broadcasting Company. Ostensibly, this was because the BBC received public funding and it would look unethical if their money was paid to reporters digging up dirt on Wilson's political rivals. However, Penrose and Courtier believed the real reason was to keep them off of MI5's trail. The reporters carried on with their work regardless, and after traveling to America to follow up on a lead, they heard whispers of a coup against Wilson. Through a CIA contact, they met a former MI6 spy named Tony Eaton. According to Eaton, in the mid-1960s, a group of top-ranking military officials approached Queen Elizabeth about replacing Wilson. Like Cecil King, they proposed a military takeover, followed by an interim civilian government. The Queen said no, putting an end to it. But according to Eaton, there was still resentment against Wilson within the military. To the extent that Protection Command, the police agency that protected Wilson's life, never even informed him about this scheme. A Protection Command official said that if there had been a plot, it wasn't serious enough to tell Wilson about. Penrose and Courtier couldn't find any concrete evidence to connect MI5 to the smear campaigns or the break-ins. Upset by their lack of results, Wilson cut off all communication with the reporters and denied ever hiring them. What Wilson didn't know was that Penrose had secretly recorded all of their conversations. What Wilson said and believed became public record when they published their book, The Pen Court File, in 1978. It was a compelling tale, full of intrigue and accusations but their investigation was just the tip of the iceberg. In 1988, a journalist named David Lee proved that Wilson was more right than they'd realized. According to Lee, in the days after World War II, when Wilson was just a young minister, MI5 spied on several members of the Labor Party. They recruited journalists and members of parliament for the task. Groups associated with the Labor Party were labeled as subversive organizations. This gave MI5 carte blanche to plant bugs and tap their phone lines. In 1963, an MI5 agent tried to get Wilson's campaign manager to spy on him. When Wilson found out, he was hardly surprised. The allegations of Anatoly Golitsyn and Jim Angleton only added fuel to MI5's vendetta. Every detail they had on Wilson went into a file codenamed Oatsheaf. 
they kept this file a secret from Wilson even after he became prime minister. The surveillance itself would have been bad enough, but Lee alleged that they also acted to subvert multiple members of Wilson's administration. The main perpetrator was MI5 agent Peter Wright. Lee described Wright as a self-aggrandizing spy hunter who never actually caught a Soviet spy. He did ruin quite a few lives, though. One of those was the labor minister, Bernard Flood. Flood's brother was a communist, as were several of his friends. However, Flood never joined the party himself. In fact, there was no evidence he'd ever helped the Soviets, but Wright was convinced he had. In January 1967, after the death of his wife, Flood became deeply depressed. A few months later, Wright brought him to MI5 headquarters for interrogation. We don't know how many interviews they had, but after the last one, Flood went home and killed himself. Wright denied having anything to do with Flood's death. According to Lee, Wright's next victim was Wilson's financial secretary, Neil McDermott, whose wife had fled the USSR as a child. Like Flood, there was no evidence she was compromised, but MI5 called her a Soviet agent, effectively ruining the Treasury Minister's career. In 1970, MI5 supposedly attacked Wilson directly. Colin Wallace was an Army intelligence officer who helped run a disinformation campaign codenamed Clockwork Orange. His job was to plant stories in British newspapers claiming Wilson was sympathetic to the KGB. It was an election year, and the goal was to make Harold Wilson lose. Wallace leaked the truth to a reporter and said he was later fired for it. MI5 emphatically denied ever running a disinformation campaign against Wilson. But they also denied that Wallace ever worked for them which made it even more apparent that they had something to hide when they changed their story in 1990. We can't say for sure whether or not MI5 influenced that year's election. But even after Wilson lost, the attacks continued. In 1971, a pulp magazine called News of the World published a front-page headline alleging that Wilson's predecessor, Hugh Gateskill, was murdered by the KGB. Meaning Galitzin's phony allegations against Wilson were now part of the public discourse. What was unthinkable before, that a prime minister could be a Soviet spy, was now a dinner table conversation. A reporter named William Massey said the rumors were fed to him by Wilson's own government. A CIA officer and an MI5 agent supposedly approached Massey with a dossier that proved one of Wilson's ministers was a Soviet spy. MI5's propaganda campaign was meant to destabilize the country, making it harder for Wilson to govern. In particular, it convinced a number of high-profile conservatives in the British Armed Forces that Wilson was a threat to democracy. In turn, these commanders prepared for a government takeover. These weren't fringe groups. They included reliable and respected men like General Sir Walter Walker, the former commander-in-chief of NATO's Northern European forces. Walker told Barry Penrose that he had the support of 100,000 soldiers ready to serve him in the event of a civil war. 
Another leader, Colonel David Sterling, actually admitted to planning a coup. All he needed was an emergency situation, like a general strike or a terrorist attack. Then his patriotic soldiers could help the military take control of the government and claim they were restoring order. A few high-ranking people actually believe the incident at Heathrow Airport was a test run for this occasion. However, there isn't a lot of evidence to support that. And as we know, the coup never happened. Yes, but there's a lot of proof that it came close. Between the aborted coups, the smear campaigns, and MI5 sabotaging his ministers, Wilson felt like he couldn't effectively run Great Britain anymore. In my opinion, that means their mission was accomplished. But maybe Wilson was just paranoid. In 1987, Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher ordered MI5 to investigate Wilson's claims that the MI5 had deliberately undermined him and his government. At the end of their audit, MI5 declared that no such conspiracy existed. So what you're saying is MI5 investigated itself and decided it was not guilty. That's hardly convincing. As far as I'm concerned, it seems like MI5 did subvert democracy and undermine Harold Wilson. I rate this theory an 8 out of 10. We can't conclusively say that MI5 attempted a coup. But the story that Wilson was a KGB agent had to have come from MI5 or the CIA. And there's no doubt that Peter Wright damaged Wilson's government by persecuting his ministers. I give this theory a 7. When you think about it, it's a pretty terrifying story. The United Kingdom is one of the largest, strongest democracies in the world. Yet it was almost destroyed, possibly from the inside, by disinformation and fear-mongering. It's a lesson we'd be wise to remember. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back next time with an all-new episode. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Xander Bernstein, with writing assistance by Lori Gottlieb and Mackenzie Moore. Fact-checking by Anya Bailey and research by Bradley Klein. Conspiracy Theories stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. Hi there, it's Alastair from Parcast. You may have heard of the Somerton Man, Azaria Chamberlain, or the Wonder Beach Murders. But do you know the whole terrifying truth? Be sure to check out my new series, Crime Down Under, where we travel to the land down under to explore the most shocking true crime cases in Australian history. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Crime Down Under, and catch a new episode every Sunday, free and only on Spotify.